This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything that Tom, Richard and myself have been up to on the first day of a brand new week, Monday, January the 8th. And that includes continuing to look at the knock-on effect from the issues in the Red Sea. We have been looking at what it means for groceries, for foodstuffs coming into this region. We've been looking at what it means for the oil price and for the insurance of shipping. And this morning, we spoke to one retailer who has about 30 containers on six boats, uh, most of which have had to be diverted around Africa. What does that mean for getting stuff into the UAE? What does it mean for cost and do they pass that cost on? Difficult decisions that we have been discussing this morning with Jens Ravenbolt, who is the CEO for this region at the Scandinavian furniture superstore, Jusk. We've also been looking at the knock-on effects for inflation of what's happening in the Red Sea with Ed Bell, Senior Director of Market Economics at Emirates NBD, as well as putting those better-than-expected jobs numbers out of the US into context with him and asking what it might all mean for rate decisions from the Fed to come. We've also been taking a look at aviation, uh, another problem for Boeing, that blowout of a panel that happened for Alaskan Airlines at the beginning of the weekend. What does it mean for the company? Jeff Thomas is our aviation expert expert from AirlineRatings.com this morning. A little closer to home. In fact, well, it concerns closer to home, but it is also an international news story. It's the latest woes for Boeing. Now, this is something that you're going to get getting more details on this coming hour. Yeah, indeed. And you say latest because um, Boeing has has had... Uh, <sighs> Well, there's been um, two crashes with the 737 MAX about four or five years ago. Um, it's made headlines for all the wrong reasons um, over the years. And now we have had this, uh, what's known as a panel blowout for the Alaska Airlines plane. It's a Boeing 737 MAX Nine. Now, very luckily, um, it wasn't at cruising altitude. It was still climbing. Um, everyone was strapped in and, and sit down and there was no one um, next to the actual bit that was um, blown out the plane. Um, so lucky on a lot of fronts. But um, the US aviation regulator, the FAA, um, has ordered 170 of these planes grounded. We're going to look at what it means for Boeing um, a little bit later on. Fly Dubai, by the way, which has three of these craft, has come out and said its aircraft is not affected by the directive. And I know Serena Kelly has more on that. Morning, Serena. Morning, guys. Uh, the Fly Dubai statement that I know they've given to the news team, to your department, um, about the 737 MAX 9. Yes. Um, so... Basically, Fly Dubai released the statement to Aero News confirming uh, that the three Boeing 737 MAX 9 in their fleet um, have not been affected because they do not have the same design as the one that was described as Brandy's been talking about with the Alaska Airlines jet. Um, it seems it is an extra door that's typically installed by low-cost airlines using extra seats that require more paths for evacuation. However, those doors are permanently plugged or deactivated. What actually happened? Well, I actually have a clip for you um, because, uh, so basically, um, just to recap, it was an Alaska Airlines jet forced to make an emergency landing on Friday night after losing a window on board. It happened about half an hour after takeoff 
Uh, it was Alaska Airlines Flight 1282, traveling from Portland International Airport to Ontario International Airport in California. So passenger photos, I'm not sure if you've seen these online, appear to show that a panel that can be used for an optional rear mid-cabin exit door had been torn away, so it leaving the gap size of a door. Um, here is one passenger uh, from the flight who described what he saw. Talking to, to a lady who was sitting in the row immediately behind where the panel blew out, that there was a, you could see later that there was a two-window section panel that blew out. It's about as wide as a refrigerator and about two-thirds as high. And she said uh, there was, I guess, a boy and his mother were sitting in that row, and his shirt was sucked off him and out of the plane, and his mother was holding on to him onto him and she said her own little boy's phone went out too so apparently they're now searching for the panel door um they've put out a public appeal as well because they want people like especially commercial businesses or warehouses to check the roofs of their buildings to see if they can find the panel door um they have reportedly found a phone i'm not sure if it is said phone of the one that was actually sucked out of the the space itself. Um, but yes, as Brandy mentioned before, luckily uh, the seat next to the panel was unoccupied. Uh, the pilot did c- declare an emergency and came down to about 10,000 feet. Yeah, we will, of course, have more on this one for you throughout the course of this morning. Uh, also, later on this hour, we're going to be talking all things uh, Red Sea crisis. What angle are we taking on that one? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So we're speaking uh, to an aviation expert about what um, the Alaskan Airlines incident means for Boeing and the future um, of its uh, aircraft programs around the 737 MAX 9. Um, and then... Before we even get there, we're going to be speaking about the Red Sea, as you say. Jens Ravenbol, um is the boss at Yisk. Um, it is one of the big Scandinavian furniture superstores. Um, they have a lot of merchandise, a lot of furniture, um, on boats that were set to go or had started to go through the Red Sea. They've made a number of diversions. So they are great people to speak to this morning about what you actually do if your products are on a container on a ship that is supposed to be going through the Suez Canal. We're going to talk about the cost of diversion and the kind of decisions that businesses need to make at the moment. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. News out in the last hour that Boeing has scheduled a company-wide safety meeting. That's after the US aviation regulator ordered the temporary grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX 9, and that's after a section blew out on an Alaskan Airlines flight at the start of the weekend. Uh, locally, Flydubai has three Boeing 737 MAX 9s, but they've told our news team in a statement that they operate their craft with a different configuration, which is not referenced in that directive. To have a look at what it means from a business point of view for Boeing, we are very pleased to be joined by the aviation expert, Geoffrey Thomas. Uh, he's speaking to us from Australia this morning. He's the managing director and editor-in-chief of AirlineRatings.com. Jeff, it's lovely to speak to you. Good morning. Pleasure, Brandy. So what do we know at the moment about what happened during the flight? What we know at the moment is the aircraft was climbing out of Portland, Oregon, en route to Ontario, California, domestic flight, uh, reached 16,000 feet and the plug, it's a plug exit door, uh, uh, came away from its fittings um, and we had a um, decompression explosion. 
Um, some passengers lost their mobile phones. Other bits and pieces went out uh, the door. Um, and in fact, I understand one passenger actually lost a shirt um, off his back. Um, so yeah, a decompression explosion is a very serious event. Uh, fortunately, the crew were able to uh, bring the aircraft back to uh, Portland and land safely. Um, and as a result of that, Alaskan Airlines immediately grounded their fleets uh, of MAX 9s, um, followed by United, then the, then the FAA uh, also uh, put in a fleet-wide grounding uh, involving 171 aircraft for an, an inspection, uh, which they say uh, takes between four and eight hours. So from that, I gather that it's a part issue or a production issue um, that, that's at fault uh, and they need to in, inspect the door uh, fittings. Um, beyond that, we don't have any detail, um, but uh, uh, quite a number of aircraft airlines actually don't operate this aircraft in that configuration, like, as you suggest, Dubai, uh, sorry, Fly Dubai, I should say, um, and uh, therefore are not impacted. What will the FAA and the airlines themselves be looking to find out? The investigations, what will they need to know? Well, they're going to, in this case, they've got obviously the aeroplane. There's two of these types of doors. They're opposite each other, so they do have one intact door to have a look at. But they also obviously want to recover the door that flew off. And they've given the coordinates of where the door was lost and they're appealing to the public uh, in the area to look out for the door and to hand it in. Um, and that will form a, a critical part of the investigation. What they'll be looking for is the, the, the way the door is affixed to the fuselage. Was there a weakness there? Was there a faulty part uh, that, uh, that uh, gave way under pressure? Because as, as when an aircraft takes off, it's pressurised and air is pumped into the fuselage and the fuselage actually expands. Um, so if there's, a, uh, for instance, a, a cargo door that hadn't been closed properly, uh, 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 any other door that hadn't been closed properly, um, that may blow out. However, uh, having said that, uh, with modern-day uh, modern aircraft today, uh, there are warning systems uh, that alert pilots that uh, if a door is not closed properly before the aircraft is pressurised. So this sort of thing should not happen. Um, it should. So in this in this case, it should not have been um, a badly closed door. Mind you, on Alaskan Airlines, these doors are not used. Uh, they, they've got it there, and so um, people who saw the video of it, you'll notice that there was a, a seat row there. Uh, but that's because Air, Alaskan Airlines does not need to use that particular exit door. They're only required when the configuration um, is uh, high enough to warrant those exit doors being used. And in the case of Alaskan, that's not the case. What does this mean for Boeing? For starters, if this is found to be a manufacturing issue or a parts issue, this is a fairly um, new plane, fresh off the conveyor belt, as it were. Um, what could it mean for Boeing's own production um, if it's found to be a fault on that side? Yes. So if there's a fault, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, the, the doors are manufactured by various uh, suppliers and those suppliers, for instance, may, uh, may uh, supply the same type of doors to, to Airbus 
or it could be a, a particular fitting that's supplied to many manufacturers to many aircraft manufacturers. So. When it comes to safety, uh, all the manufacturers do share information. They work together because any accident not only damages, say, Boeing or damages Airbus, it damages the industry. Um, so that there's a there's a great collaboration behind the scenes. So they they will quickly find out exactly what the issue is, and advise all the operators of this particular aircraft type, and also uh, any any other manufacturers who get those particular parts from that particular supplier. So it's a, a very collaborative, very um, positive atmosphere that exists between manufacturers uh, behind the marketing and sales side of things. What about reputational damage for for Boeing? It had already asked airlines to check um, some of the MAX 737 planes for a potential bolt issue. Obviously, there were those mm-hmm. um, two fatal crashes, 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. a different model, but still um, one of the, the MAX aircraft, and that obviously damaged um, Boeing's reputation there. What does this latest incident mean for the company? Look, it, it does give them a little bit of a black eye and it raises the issue about the 737 MAX. The reality is uh, the 737 MAX is an absolutely outstanding aeroplane, uh, incredibly safe today, incredibly safe. Um, and airlines have come back to order them in hundreds and hundreds. Uh, Boeing has now got a order book for about 6,000 of these aircraft. So incredibly popular aeroplane because it performs so well. Um Certainly, this is going to be a little bit of a black eye for them, uh, and it comes, as you suggest, on the back of um, a bolt issue, which was a precautionary uh, check to make sure that um, uh, various aircraft were not impacted by a fault that was found. This sort of thing goes on in the background all the time. The Europeans and the Americans and other other regulators issue what's called airworthiness directives or emergency airworthiness directives, or more commonly service bulletins all the time, uh, because the the checking and cross-checking in aviation is so incredibly thorough. Uh, Most of these service bulletins and airworthiness directives actually go unnoticed. It just happens that the 737 MAX is in the news a lot um, because of those terrible tragedies uh, a number of years ago. Um, And of course, this particular uh, accident uh, because a part fell off the aeroplane so it's an accident um, is very visual uh, lots of social media coverage obviously uh, and 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 rightly so rightly so um, but um, I'm sure it'll pass and, um, and and things will sort of return to normal um, and the max will continue to serve airlines very very well Jeff Thomas is Managing Director and Editor-in-Chief of AirlineRatings.com speaking to us this morning on the news um, that Boeing has just scheduled a company-wide safety meeting after that Alaskan Airlines mid-air blowout uh, on the 737 MAX 9 at the beginning of the weekend. Thank you for your time. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Where we have indeed been looking at the different business implications uh, of the tax in the Red Sea. We've been looking at what it means for the oil price. We've been looking at what it means for insurance. Georgia Tolley's been looking at what it means for moving if you are shipping uh, your house from one place to the other. And we're going to look at now at what the crisis means for retailers who are shipping goods into Dubai. Joined by one of them at the moment, Jens Ravenbolt is the Chief Executive Officer for the Middle East at the Danish furniture superstore Yusk. Jens, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Let's first look at how you get your furniture into Dubai. Where does it come from? What route does it normally take? So normally we uh, ship from Europe and we ship from uh, Asia into Dubai. And you've got a number of shipments at sea at the moment that are affected. Yeah, currently we have uh, six uh, vessels on the way to Dubai with uh, products from uh, from Europe, which are all affected by uh, by the situation in the Red Sea. So about 30 containers. Yes, that's correct. How long would a shipment normally take to get here from Europe? Normally it takes uh, around about three to four weeks maximum to get to uh, to Dubai from Europe. And what decisions have have you taken about the shipments that are out there at the moment? So currently, uh, all of these ships and vessels on the on the way with our containers to Dubai are either uh, held up are held up in uh, in the in the um, in the Mediterranean, or they are redirected around uh, Africa. And redirection around Africa will take two three weeks uh, longer shipping time for us to get the products into Dubai. But you've decided to redirect them. Uh, it's uh, shipping the shipping uh, companies who are making the decisions real time on where which routes are best and most secure for their for their ships and uh, for their staff. So, what does that mean for you in terms of extra transport time and in terms of cost? Yeah, this is the tricky thing because uh, extra transport time obviously means we have to build up more uh, stock here in the um, in Dubai to be able to service our customers. It increases cost, obviously, to uh, to transport it all the way around uh, Africa, and then it takes another two three weeks to to actually get here, uh, eventually, which delays our supply and deliveries to all our customers. Okay, so you're looking it up to three weeks more. That is correct. What will it add to the cost of those shipments? Typically, what we are seeing right now is that the shipping companies are charging somewhere between $1,000 to $1,500 per container. Okay, and is that for, that? you say that's the shipping companies. What about insurance? Is that in that price? Uh, no, we also have to pay additional insurance if we uh, sail through uh, war, war zones with, uh, with the containers. Will you be passing those extra costs on to your customers? Uh, see, this is a good question. And obviously, we have a strong commitment to all our customers to uh, offer great value at, at, at great prices. And uh, last year, in 2023, we were able to start lowering our prices following the pandemic. And obviously, right now, we're looking at uh, how, how and when to uh, pass on any, any additional cost to the customers. For now, we're not passing on any, any cost to the customers at, uh, at this time. We'll wait and see. And uh, hopefully it will not be needed. What will that decision depend on? Time. I think ultimately how long time this conflict will continue to be uh, be in the Red Sea. So what is the stock situation looking like for, for you at the moment? Uh, we have had a super, super good stock position uh, since we came out of the uh, pandemic. And obviously right now, a slowdown two, three weeks will mean that in, uh, in maybe a month's time, we'll start to see some stock running out fast. Not all of the stock, but some stock positions will start to run out fast. Okay, so is there a, a lag on that? Yeah, there is, because, uh, you know, the global supply chain and trade is a highly efficient machine. Most people work on a, uh, a just-in-time uh, basis, and we do the same. And that means we make orders every single week. Currently, we have uh, six vessels on the way to Dubai with, with products, but every single week we have another one and another one and another one. And if they now need to have another three weeks to get to Dubai, uh, this will add almost double the time to, uh, to get the products into Dubai for us. 
If you've got one ship leaving a week, have you already made decisions about the ships that will leave uh, for the rest of this month, say, or are you doing it on a last minute sort of case by case basis? No, we have to make the decision almost uh, upfront. So right now we are directing most or all of our shipments around the uh, around Africa. But uh, but I also want to say that uh, uh, shipping from Europe is not the only thing being affected. Uh, lots of the global trade east to west and west to east passes through the Suez Channel. So around 30% of all trade in the world will be impacted. And therefore also our shipments coming out of uh, Asia is being impacted. Because when ships have to be on the ocean two, three weeks longer than they used to be, it takes capacity out of the market. And when capacity is taken out of the market, it obviously means that prices will increase uh, regardless of where the shipment is coming from, whether it's from Europe or from Asia. And uh, we'll see that effect very, very fast in, uh, in this market also. So do you think that prices will have to go up in this market regardless? I think for shipping prices and transportation into Dubai, for sure, we will see uh, price increases. It's probably more than double in, uh, in the coming time, yeah. And the retailers that you speak to, your WhatsApp groups with your peers, what decisions are people making about prices? What's the chat at the moment? I think everyone is is wait and see and, and holding back because obviously we, we have seen a lot of inflation during the pandemic and everybody is keen to bring... The, the world and our our own companies back to back to a normal situation and we're happy to see that you know uh, supply and uh, shipping and freight has gone back we have seen uh, raw material costs coming down and nobody is really keen on seeing things having to return back to a more inflationary environment again and of course this isn't the first time we've discussed supply chain disruptions with you because we had the same during COVID. Yeah, it very much seems like a, a, a return to a deja vu kind of situation, yes. It does. Does that deja vu situation prompt any wider discussions in the business about things like nearshoring, about opening more dispersed manufacturing bases? Yeah, I think that is already going on, actually. Uh, following the pandemic, I think most companies realize that they are maybe too vulnerable to uh, to interruptions. And so uh, nearshoring absolutely is happening, I think, across the board, everywhere, including in Yusk and everywhere else, I am, anybody I'm speaking to, really. Well, I know that Dubai has got great ambitions to be a manufacturing hub. We've got a big national strategy for exactly that. Have you considered doing any of your manufacturing here? We actually have very, very small supply out of uh, Dubai right now, and I can see that uh, that would grow in the uh, in the future. Yes, uh, in certain in certain areas of our of our product range, in home furnishings, obviously almost everything, uh, and uh, and uh, all our products are touching almost anything in raw materials. Uh, you know, glass, wood, aluminium, steel, fabrics, every, in, anything really. And anything where we see, like uh, ceramics, as an example, where where UAE has an uh, an advantage in uh, in rack, as an example, that would be an obvious place for us to look for for supplies. Also, yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Jens Rambol is the CEO for Jusk Danish Furniture Superstore, um, the other Scandinavian furniture retailer. Speaking to us this morning, he runs the Middle East region um, about the thirty containers that he has on six boats on the seas coming here at the moment um, that he has had to redirect. We appreciate your time this morning. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk inflation now. Traders cutting their outlook for US interest rates after a stronger than expected US jobs report on Friday. 216,000 
New jobs created. Traders now put the chance of a March rate cut at just 66%. To give you some context, a week ago, it was 90%. Ed Bells here, Senior Director of Market Economics, Emirates MBD. Morning, Ed. Good morning. What's your take? Well, uh, we're actually not in the camp that there's going to be any move from the Fed in March. So we think that that market pricing of a two-thirds chance of a cut to rates does look still too aggressive. I think we had, yeah, better than expected non-farm payrolls for December, 216,000 jobs added. But when you look through the totality of the report, it wasn't quite all Goldilocks. We had revisions downwards for both the October and the November uh, non-farm payrolls report. The unemployment rate was flat at 3.7%, which does look good on the surface of it. But if you look at why it was flat, it's because the labor force actually decreased and there was a drop in another measure of employment. So those kind of things offset each other to say that, well, not everything is looking exactly uh, perfect in the U.S. labor market. We did have another rise, monthly rise in household or average earnings, 0.4% month on month. So there's enough in there that's good, that's bad. I think that for us can is not necessarily the driving force for the Fed to be looking forward in the next couple of meetings. It's really going to be much more about what's happening with prices and the outlook for inflation than what's happening on the labor market. Busy week for you, an economist like you, drinking from the fire hydrant when it comes to inflation data. We've got American data out on Thursday. We've also got Japanese data out on Thursday, China out on Friday, others as well this week. What are you looking for? Yeah, well, it's going to be a very interesting story to compare and contrast among these big economies. Of course, most critical for the Fed, and then also as it translates back into this part of the world, given the the central bank peg um, currencies to the U.S. dollar, is what happens with inflation in the U.S. Now, on the headline, the headline CPI in the U.S. is expected to tick up marginally for, again, this is backward looking to December because of some uh, increases in energy prices. But the core inflation, which is the kind of uh, less volatile measure of inflation that the Fed really looks at as a as a more symptomatic of what's actually happening in the underlying tightness or availability of supplies and services in the economy, that is expected to slow down uh, a little bit to about 3.8% year on year for December. So it still is heading very much in the right direction as far as the Fed is concerned, but we're still some ways away from the Fed's 2% target level. So even if we're on the direction, we still think that the Fed wants to keep the edge on keeping policy cautious before unnecessarily easing conditions too much and risk inflation popping up in a big way again. I think the contrast with what we're seeing in China, where the fear is that inflation is actually going to be too low, um, that you know you could have the economy move out into outright deflation as it sort of struggles in its post-pandemic recovery. We saw some measures last year from the Chinese authorities to try and help improve sentiment, improve consumption in the economy. But all the while, China is dealing with this pretty big debt overhang stemming from issues in the property sector that's probably going to be a bit of a depressing factor on consumption and investment levels overall. What impact might the Red Sea have on inflation? Oxford Economics says that a sustained closure of Red Sea shipping lines could add 0.6% to global inflation. Let's remind ourselves what Jens Ravenbol had to say on this show about half an hour ago. Now, he is the man behind Yusk, the furniture store in their local operations. They ship furniture from Europe to the UAE. This is what he had to say. I think everyone is is wait and see and and holding back because obviously we we have seen a lot of inflation during the pandemic and everybody is keen to bring the the world and our our own companies back to back to a normal situation and we're happy to see that you know 
supply and uh, shipping and freight has gone back. We have seen uh, raw material costs coming down and nobody is really keen on seeing things having to return back to a more inflationary environment again. How concerned are you about the inflationary impact of the Red Sea situation? Yeah, I mean, any disruption to a critical um, trade choke point like the Red Sea, like the Suez Canal. I mean, if we can think just a couple of years ago when the Suez Canal was blocked uh, by a ship that had been lodged in it, all of those things are going to add to cost pressures to work, uh, to, to to firms if they have to ship goods further around um, the Africa. It's going to take longer for goods to get from Europe to Asia or vice versa. So all of that will add to shipping costs. We have seen them come up in the last couple of days, albeit not to levels that we had seen in, in prior years. So by sort of the average of the last couple of years, shipping costs have not risen that much, but they are on the upward trend as these disruptions cause extended journeys. You'll see um, the impact of higher inf- uh, insurance on shipping also probably feed into that. So I think what you can take away from this, even if we're not necessarily feeling a material impact on costs immediately, is that the most likely it is going to be inflationary, additionary, uh, or additional kind of component rather than the other way around. Okay, so let's take all this into consideration. What do you expect to happen to interest rates in 2024? We do think broadly that rates are going to be coming lower. From the US, we think that the first rate cuts are going to come towards the end of the first half of the year, and then we'll get a couple more in the second half. So we're, again, a lot shallower or a lot less uh, dovish than what the market is looking out for in terms of cuts. We also think that uh, markets like the Bank of England, uh, like the European Central Bank, will also go in the way in terms of cutting rates, given that inflation, again, it's moving in the right direction. It hasn't got completely to a level that I think central banks will be comfortable with, but they will be in a position to be able to cut later in the year. 30 seconds, the impact of all of this on the UAE economy this year? Well, we've got a good non-oil outlook for the UAE economy this year, and I think the idea that rates will be moving lower certainly helps to add some tailwinds to that economy. Ed Bell, Senior Director of Market Economics at Emirates MBD. Always good talking to you, particularly live in the studio, Ed. Appreciate you coming in this morning. Thank you. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.